You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hi everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Priya Parker is a master facilitator, strategic advisor, and author of The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters. Priya and I met on the Together Tour years ago, and I just fell in love with the person that she is, and I'm so excited to introduce her to all of you today. I was so excited to talk to her on Work in Progress about how her childhood helped her learn to navigate between different groups, the importance of FaceTime, the biggest mistakes people make when planning a gathering, and more. She is brilliant, you guys, and I'm sure you're going to learn so much from her. Hi, Priya. Hi, Sophia. I'm so happy you're here. I'm so happy to be here. We just, we started gabbing and I was like, wait, stop, stop, hit record. This Roll is all the too good. <laughs> you just, you have such a beautiful sensibility in the way that you look at things and talk about things. And you, you even just hit the nail on the head about why podcasts are special mm. in a way I've never heard anybody say it. You, you said that this is one of the few mediums in media practicing enoughness? I was struck because I saw a, a tweet that announced that it was the, that the Pulitzer Prize Committee is expanding its categories to include audio. Mm. And that's a big deal, right? Because it's basically saying that this is something that has mastery. This is a, this is a modality that we should be paying attention to. Mm. This is a way of connecting with citizens in a way that is considered to be worthy and perfectible. And one of the reasons I think podcasts are so beautiful and, and, and also are kind of taking off is because in this day of an age of distractions and um, you can kind of be anywhere at any time or be where you are and totally check out, the idea that it's not visual, you don't have to watch a lot of things, you don't have to look at a screen, it's just you and the person in your ear, it's enough. I love that. 
love that. Gosh. Okay. I'm going to take everybody back a minute. So you and I met, it was the third year, uh, which would have been last year. So the fall of 2018, Mm -hmm. the third year of the Together Live tour, Mm -hmm. traveling around with me and you and Glennon Doyle and Abby Wambach and so many other just incredible women. And you spoke about your first book, The Art of Gathering. It's, it's a subject that you've studied at MIT. It's about human design. It's a subject on which you gave a TED Talk, which I'm obsessed with. So <laughs> listeners, you should definitely watch it and it'll be in our stories for this episode. You can, you can hit the link and enjoy. Just to step back uh, a little bit, my background is in conflict resolution. So mm-hmm. I'm a group conflict resolution facilitator. And I, I'm biracial. I'm bi-religious. I grew up in a lot of different cities and, and countries. And I was very frustrated again and again and again by the gatherings that I went to, whether mm. they're conferences or birthday parties or meetings, in part because as a facilitator, you're trained to understand group dynamics, how to shift a situation, how to help people meaningfully connect quickly. But going to gathering after gathering where people spent so much time and focus on kind of the stuff, the things, mm-hmm. like how to perfect the, you know, the table setting or make sure you have ramps the season in your food or the lighting or the PowerPoint presentation. And we've been told kind of for decades that if you get the stuff right, everything else will kind of take care of itself. And I knew as a conflict resolution facilitator that that's just not true, that the way you actually create meaningful connections between people is you focus on the interaction and the meaning between people, not on the stuff. Mm. And so I, um, I set out to on this journey to look at how people in extreme contexts create group experiences for others that are transformative, that are meaningful. So I spent time with a God-optional rabbi, with a dominatrix, with a photographer that has seven minutes with a head of state and has to figure out how to get exactly the right shot that the head of state doesn't want to give, Mm -hmm. and all the bodyguards in the room also don't want him to give, and the photographer figures out how to switch the dynamic in the room. And, And a Circus Soleil choreographer, a, a World Cup hockey coach who has to figure out in a week how to get 23 players from different countries to become one. Mm. And ask them, like, when it works, why does it work? And the art of gathering is really an exploration to look at how do you actually create meaningful gatherings anytime you gather in your personal life, with your friends, with your family, in your workplace, in the public square. And it's a belief that anybody can do this. You don't need a fancy house. You don't need a lot of education. You don't need the right fish knives. But you need to pay attention to what people actually need, what you need in front of you, and how do you actually create meaning between people in the simplest of ways. I love that so much. <laughs> so we, I want to get into all of it, the book, the research, the science, the dominatrix, the God-optional rabbi. <laughs> I, I have so like many that. questions about all of them. I love it. I love to learn about all of these sort of specific arenas that people exist in. But you mentioned your childhood, and I do always love to start with people. Were you like this as a kid? (laughs) You know, were you a conflict resolution expert because you grew up between two households, even in childhood? I am deeply conflict averse. Hmm. And when my parents divorced, I was shocked. Everybody was shocked. How old were you? Um, they were, I was nine when they separated and mm. probably 11 when they divorced. And the reason I was shocked was because they never fought. 
Uh, we were a household of unhealthy peace. And my mother, who's Indian, came, she's the, she's the middle child of five. And my father, who's white American, grew up in Waterloo, Iowa. And for very different reasons and in very different cultural contexts, they both basically were taught not to make a fuss, quote unquote. And they were, they met at Iowa State. They were both adventurers. My mother's an anthropologist and my father's a hydrologist. And they, for the first 10, 12 years of their lives, they, they lived in fishing villages. They would go in a VR van across Central America and drive to Costa Rica and interview farmers. They lived in Botswana. They lived in the Maldives. I was born in Zimbabwe because the closest good hospital that would accept a biracial couple at the time, an interracial couple, was in, in Zimbabwe. And wow. and they they eventually moved back to the U.S. and moved to Virginia, and then within a year they separated, and within two years they divorced, and within three years they had each remarried other people, and I was their only child, and they had joint custody, and every two weeks I would go back and forth between these two households, and I say this in the TED talk, mm-hmm. but it's still true. I my mother and stepfather was this. I would leave this home that. Um, was Indian and British, Buddhist, agnostic, atheist, vegetarian. On Sundays, we would meditate and there'd be incense filled everywhere. Um, World banky, global, internationalists, progressive, Democrat. And I would travel 1.4 miles. This is in Vienna, Virginia. And I would enter my father and stepmother's home. And it was and still is a white, evangelical, Christian, conservative, Republican, two or three times a week church-going meat-eating, you know, dogs, dog household, Republican, conservative, climate skeptic family. And they were both my families. And I was part of both of them, but I was also apart from both of them. Mm. And so my entire life growing up, particularly between the age of kind of 10 to 19, was an experiment in figuring out how to belong to two families that were trying to figure out who they were. And I would go back and forth between these two households. And I remember I would, um, <laughs> I would pack two enormous, like humongous duffel bags. They were so big, they're almost like body bags. And both parents, both sets of parents and my step-siblings would be like, why don't you just leave one set of clothes at one house and one set of clothes at the other? And I felt like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, I, ha- I want to have something that is consistent. I was like a little turtle mm. with like carrying my shell on my back, going back and forth with these, with these clothes mm. because I didn't want to have the – I wanted something besides me. I didn't have a sibling. So I wanted something besides me to kind of like have a through line between these two households. Mm. And I didn't realize that until years later, but a huge part of my life has been trying to figure out, as a conflict resolution facilitator later on, questions like – How do we become who we are? When our relationships no longer serve us, Mm -hmm. how do we exit? What of those relationships do we take with us? How do we decide who we can become without betraying where we come from? And how do we do that with other people? And to me, every gathering is an opportunity to explore those questions. We're always exploring them. They're just usually implicit. And what I'm interested in is bringing, making the implicit a little bit more explicit and mm-hmm. creating context in which we're all kind of figuring out together, like, who are we? What do we believe in? What do we share in common and how are we different? And how do we make meaning together even if we don't believe the same thing? 
And what do you think? I mean, it's just, wow, yes to all of it. And that image of, of you as a little girl with her little turtle shell just kills me. How do you think moving between those spaces, how do you think you learn to navigate between those two worlds? How did you learn to, as you say, you were a part of both families, yet apart from them? So I'll, I'll give an example. And I think I think I'm an extreme version of all of us, mm-hmm. right? We each walk into a space, whether it's a religious space or an a-religious space, whether it's a place where people have strong beliefs about food or couldn't, you know, care less, and all of the time, implicitly, are basically asking, "Do I belong here? Do I want to belong here? Am I a part of this, or am I apart from it?" Mm. Right? And my childhood was just a more extreme articulation of those questions. Mm -hmm. So I remember I would be part of the church youth group when I was at my father's house. And interestingly, even though the church youth group would continue to meet every week, I would only go when I was at my father's house. So I'd also Mm -hmm. actually be missing half the time. Mm -hmm. And at one of our youth group visits, we went to a um, rally in Baltimore. I'll never forget it. And it was like, it was, I think it was called Light the Fire. And it was in this massive, like, basketball stadium. And it was like, it was like a rave, but it was like a Christian rave, but full of teenagers. And like any kind of, I would say good gathering, there's an emotional arc, but the, what they were focusing on were things like, I mean, at one point I remember those crowds of young people were literally passing around a coffin and the preacher on the stage was saying like, throw your sin into the coffin, throw your secular world into the coffin. And I remember the coffin was approaching me and I was like, what does that mean? What is in this coffin? And I looked over and there were Metallica CDs, you know? (laughs) I mean, it didn't even necessarily make sense, but these kind of rituals of belonging of like, what are my possessions? What are my earthly possessions? What are the possessions I want to give away? And then at one point in this rally um, on stage, there was this infomercial and I looked up and I'm, I'm half Indian and half white American. And I looked up and on the infomercial, there were these two Indian gods, like these two little plastic or wooden Hindu deities. And I was like, that's interesting. Why is that here? And all of a sudden, they were blowing them up. And I thought, oh, my God, that's my family. Like, that's my grandfather. That's my – what are they doing? And then right after that moment, they called for everybody to give their life to Christ and, and walk on stage. And, you know – I, I don't know how you were raised or your listeners, you know, this, this, this is a, these are traditions and rituals in different Christian communities around the country. And they come in different manifestations. Mm. For me, in that moment, was all of the people I loved in my youth group kind of got up and were kind of following the, the spirit, if you will, mm. but following at least the emotional arc. You, you, the script, if you were following, it was to stand up and walk to stage. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, I thought, and I remember I was shaking, and I said, I love God, but I can't walk up on that stage. This is not who I am, and this is not what I believe. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, this, it was this radical act I mean, I can look back then and see like, okay, I, you know, I don't think that that's, that's wrong, but it was this radical act to stay seated. Mm. And everybody in my youth group felt sorry for me. And there were moments where 
in any community that's that's monolithic, that's trying to develop an identity that in part is based on who they're not, right? They're blowing up the Indian gods. So in part of that is also, and this is sociology, it's also then reifying your own identity, right? We are not that. We are this. I could see in that moment that that line being drawn was not a line I could be a part of. And then in when I would be with my mother, we would go to like landmark forum conferences. We would go to the Theosophical Society in, in Chennai and in, in Madras in India, where my grandparents lived and believe that all religions are equal. And the ways they would open their rituals would be seven leaders of different faiths coming and praying in different ways. And that's mm. how we would open. And so a big part of how I learned to navigate was first seeing that there are many ways to be and many ways to gather. And also to see that well, I would say at an earlier age, a big part of it was just I was a chameleon and whatever I was, wh- wherever I was, I was trying to figure out the codes and the language and the belief systems. You know, when I was at my, my husband pointed out years later, when I'm at my mother's house and somebody sneezes, I say, bless you. And then when I'm at my father's house and somebody sneezes, I say, God bless you. And I code switch. And mm. it wasn't until my 20s that I started really, really asking, who am I? not only when I'm in a context of these two polarizing families. Mm. But I think that's true for many of us. Yeah. And I guess what strikes me just as so odd is that human beings feel the need to define who they are by either perpetuating or showcasing harm to other humans. You know, identity is, um, I studied political and social thought in college and and was really interested in identity and race and immigration. Mm. And part of identity formulation is figuring out both who you are, but by definition, also figuring out who you are not. Mm. And um, I was recently speaking with a... Um, a social psychologist who's an expert on authoritarianism. Her name is Karen Stenner. And um, she was, she's written a number of pieces on the rise of the kind of authoritarian trait in populations. So not authoritarian leaders, but she has this thesis backed by, by her research with Jonathan Haidt that basically says that in any population, there's a small percentage, up to 30% that of people who have kind of an authoritarian, are, are, are predisposed to authoritarianism. Mm. And there are certain conditions that can trigger that then wanting to, you know, that be, be activated. And one of the things that she said was, so we asked her, so in, in this moment of our political <laughs> nightmare, how would you advise the country to come back together? And she said, part of the irony is that for people to rally together, or at least with the, for a certain percentage of the population to rally together, you need an other you need a common enemy. And she, and, and, and she said, I'm only half joking here, but that common enemy, if you really wanted to unite humanity, you'd say, those aliens are going to get us. Let's fight the aliens. Wow. And I thought that was a really interesting provocation because she wasn't trying to say, like, change psychology if only we weren't this way. She was, and she wasn't saying, can't we just all get along? She was saying, find a common enemy that you can all agree upon, and perhaps it's not in this galaxy. But wouldn't it be nice if climate change could be our common enemy? 
Absolutely. It and I think be. I think there's an opportunity to do that. Right? Mm-hmm. I think climate change is a massive brand problem. I think mm-hmm. part of the psychology is like climate change needs to actually fighting climate change needs to be patriotic. It needs yes. to be exciting. It needs to be something that's transgressive. Well, and it is all of those things, but I would say that the problem with climate change being accurately represented as our common enemy is that there is a portion of people who also tend toward the authoritarian in this country and in the world who make a lot of money by sustaining climate disaster. And and so they have branded fighting climate change as partisan rather than as patriotic, Absolutely. which is a detriment to us all. I mean, I remember a few years ago, I read a piece that was about a small local group in North Carolina of um, of a Christian activists who identified on the right side, like right meaning politically right side of the spectrum. And they were deeply concerned about climate change and they were deeply concerned about the environment. And the movement that they started was basically reframing climate change as a Christian duty mm. and as protecting the, you know, God's creation. Mm. And to me, this was like this brilliant invitation Mm -hmm. to reframe what has become a polarizing issue within the values of a specific population. And you don't have to have necessarily the same values to fight a common cause. But I think in this country right now and around the world, we are so polarized that something that seems like such common sense as protecting our air and our water and what gives us life um, has become, you know, disputable, has become controversial and has become something that frankly is dangerous to all of us. You mentioned... And sorry to be jumping around, but I'm just so fascinated by so many things. And and you mentioned, you know, what you were studying in college, but I am curious about the in-between time still when you're in school, junior high, high school, perhaps because of your learning to navigate and you being so beautifully observational about what's going on around you. What were you really drawn to as a young woman, as a student? What were you reading what were you interested in? Were there activities you participated mm-hmm. in in school? Um, it's such a great question. Uh, to me, as I look back, the, the activities that most deeply shaped me were um, <laughs> team sports and choreographed dancing. Mm. And actually, and, and uh, perhaps I'm making a little news here because I've never admitted this publicly, marching band. Hey, girl. (laughs) What did you play in the marching band? Um, Flute and piccolo. (laughs) Okay. I played flute for one year in the sixth grade, and I was not good at it. (laughs) This is why you are a movie star, and I am not. (laughs) Listen, I wish I could play an instrument. So... When I look back at it, so when I was a child, the way, like, the my happy place again and again and again was choreographed dancing with my friends. And it wasn't particularly good. It wasn't particularly, mm-hmm. like, you know, well executed. But my father, we didn't have a lot of money. He realized that I loved doing this. And he went to, he found um, this rug store in our town. And he noticed that in the back there was a dumpster and they would throw out basically, like, carpets and the foam underneath the carpets. And he would, he went and he picked, he got them and he put them in our basement and he created basically six layers of foam from this like discarded foam from this carpet store. And so my basement became kind of like the dance slash gymnastics area. 
And my friends and I would choreograph dance to Paul Abdul and, you know, Madonna. And I always, even then, and I didn't think of it in that way until now, but even then, this idea of kind of physical choreography that is that is collective, that is that is synchronized in a way, but is based on creativity. That's that you, you once you master a specific dance move and you're all in line, that's actually when you can start doing it a flick and you know in, in your own way. I played softball very seriously as a you know, middle school and high school, and a huge part of it, I often say, softball gave me my voice. And softball is an interesting sport because it's one of the only sports that I know of where basically you, the player and the the cheerleader basically is the same person. Mm. So when you're on the field, you're playing, right? You're, I was a pitcher. I was a catcher. It's, it's extremely physical. You have like, you know, really fast balls thrown at your head and you, you know, it's a serious sport. And then when you go into the dugout in softball, there's this tradition, there's this ritual of cheering. And the cheering and the jeering, first of all, it's like, it's very vocal. It's jeering. It's aggressive. It's um, actually literally allowing 12 and 13 and 14-year-old girls to practice voice, to practice not being nice, to practice not being pretty, to practice wow. not sounding, quote unquote, perfect. And it was also this this other world where it was okay to be antagonistic. It was okay to be aggressive. And I played it seriously and I ended up, le I would lead a lot of chants, I mean, along with my other fellow players. And I think it gave me this opportunity to practice having voice and practice another form of being a girl that didn't follow the scripts that were around us. Mm. And so sports to me was a huge place where I could I could practice and be comfortable in my body. I could be physical. I could be with other women and practice mastery. You were physically strong. There were all of these different ways where there were rules that anyone could understand. I mean, one of the things I argue for and, and analyze in, um, in the gathering research is why rules are powerful in diverse societies. And they're powerful because anyone can understand them. Anyone can play softball or soccer or basketball or football mm -hmm. because you're literally like, these are the rules. That's a goalpost. You know, three strikes and you're out. Four mm -hmm. balls, this. Anyone can learn them. And in more impenetrable societies, a lot of these codes and, and rules aren't learnable. You have to belong to a place for 40 years to understand how to actually navigate it. Mm. Um, and so I think I've always been attracted in part because I've lived in different places to places where rules are explicit, under, understandable, and masterable because they are democratic. So what does that mean? What's an example of a place with masterable democratic rules that you've encountered? So one, I mean, it's, it's kind of a funny one. There's a global phenomenon called Dinner and Blanc. It's literally a massive flash mob of a dinner party where everybody dresses in white and there's these very strict rules. I mean, it's in 60 or 70 countries, cities around the world. It's in Kigali. It's in Haiti. It's in, it started in Paris. It's in Tokyo. It's in New York. It's in Philadelphia. And the waiting lists for these dinners are literally like 26,000 people long. The dinners in many of these cities are 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 people. And it started 25 years ago. And I, I analyze it in the book in part because it's this very polarizing dinner because people either love it or hate it. Like you can go online and there are like these blogs that just mm. basically like hate this dinner. Why would you, you know, why would you spend money to buy a specific table that's 28 inches by 32 inches? Why do you have to have white socks? Why do you have to? And the rules are spelt out. There's like 24 rules. 
You need to wear white, no no beer cans. You have to pick up your own trash, uh, no plastic, bring your own homemade food, ideally. Like there's all of these explicit rules. And what seems like something that's very elitist is actually deeply democratic Mm -hmm. because it's explicit and anyone can follow it or choose not to. And so in New York, where I'm based, when you go to these, if you go to a dinner in Blanc, one of the things you'll notice is it's extraordinarily diverse Mm -hmm. racially. It's one of the most diverse public or private dinners in the city, in part because the rules are masterable. And many of our circles, many of our private clubs, many of our, not even formal groups, but many of the groups that you kind of have to earn earn access to are defined by unspoken rules, unspoken etiquette, that if you don't have the right degree or you don't have the right training or you haven't been you know, brought up in the right way, it's impossible to penetrate. Mm. And so I think part, in a, I'm very interested also in how do we meaningfully gather as citizens? How do we gather in creative and public ways that are still specific where there's a there there? And I think in modern diverse societies, making temporary rules explicit and understandable are, is a way to make meaning without all having to be the same forever, mm. just for about three hours. That is so cool. That's so cool. Also, I want to go to one of those dinners immediately. <laughs> and, and it's a lot of work. Like, you literally have to get a table. First, you have to apply. And I think there's really a really long waiting list in most cities. But you have to get a table that's exactly the right amount long because they're actually trying to build a line of, you know, 5,000 people in a row. For a while, they only allowed men and women. You bring a partner. And for a while, it's only men and women. And then people protested and they've changed that rule. But you, you have to struggle. You, it's a, you show up at a specific time in a specific city. The, the location changes every year. It's not announced. Rain or shine. And uh, it's a lot of work to get to. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the people who you know, love it, and not everybody does, but who love it, they, they basically say part of the struggle is the beauty of it. I want to be here. What a beautiful night where we can all kind of be here together in this world of our making that will mm-hmm. disappear in three hours. Yeah, it's magical. It's magical. You and show up and you create it and you leave and there's no trace. There's no trace, but there's a memory. Yes. And, and part of the memory is like, Gatherings are powerful because they create a temporary alternative world for a moment in time that will not last forever, but creates an imprint on you and a memory of if it was possible there, where else could this be possible? Mm. One of the people I sat down with for, um, for my book research, I, so I, I interviewed hosts and gatherers who create these kind of remarkable experiences, but I also interviewed a lot of guests Mm. So like, get, and I use that word kind of broadly, like guests of Burning Man, guests of the Million Man March, mm-hmm. guests of the Women's March. And um, one, of the, one of the men I sat down with is an African-American guy who lives in Harlem. And he told me that, you know, almost 20 years later, one of the most important experiences of his life was attending as a young man, the Million Man March. Mm. And I said, why? Tell me. And he said, well, the memory of it is... He said, I remember driving down from New York. Mm-hmm. I remember honking on the, on the highways with all, with all of these different strangers all going down to the same place. I remember stopping at the gas stations and filling up each other's gas. Mm-hmm. I remember like, practicing this different way of being. I remember walking up to, that, you know, to the National Monument, and I looked, and I just saw a sea of black faces. And in that moment, I thought, wow, this is what dawn looks like. And he said, and then for a second, I felt fear. And then I felt Mm. shame. 
because I thought, how can I, a black man, feel fear? What has been trained and inculcated in me to feel fear? And what a relief it is to stand here in the crowd and not think that I am the problem, but that I am the solution. Wow. And as I spoke to him and listened, I said, but you know, a lot, and what do you think about that memory today, right? In a moment of increased police brutality, in a moment of increased maternal mortality rates among African-American mothers. And he says, I know all of that. I'm aware of all of that. And, and, and there are some of my peers and some of my friends who say, what was, who, who cares? That was another time. Look what's happened. Things have gotten worse. But what, why that gathering matters to me is because I have a memory of what Dawn looked like. And I know it was possible because I was there. And to me, gatherings that they're most powerful are opportunities to kind of flick or wink at another way of being for a temporary piece, a temporary moment to Mm -hmm. say, we were like this at one point. Could we be like this again? Yes. Wow. And that idea that something can happen in a space where a community comes together with an intention that makes you feel like the course of history could be altered. Correct. And that, in fact, does often alter it. Correct. And I think that part of our problem, in in my estimation and observation, part of our problem as humans is that when things like the Million Man March happen or when after World War II we as a collective humanity say we could never let that happen again, we think because it's happened that it's fixed because we've made a decision that we're going to be better to each other, that, that the decision will magically appear as reality in society. But often the things that give us the most inspiration, I think, then make us rest mm, a little too much. That's interesting. And, and then we don't pay attention when the powers that be that want to maintain, you know, when we talk about the oil industry, for example, not wanting us to understand that climate change is, in fact, bipartisan and, a, and, a, and the plight of every person on the globe, I think there are people who have been in such power that they really take advantage of humans feeling like they've done something to, to actually steer us away from the progress of those big events. You know, you look at, look at the first women's march. We had the women's march and then we saw the greatest sweeping anti-abortion and women and children and family restrictive legislation sweep America that we've ever seen. We elected over a hundred women to Congress and then they essentially tried to keep everyone barefoot and pregnant. (laughs) And the thing is, I think babies are great. I think pregnancy is great. If you're ready, if you have the means, if you're financially able, I think it's your decision and your family and your household with you and your doctor and no one else. And the irony that our supposed uh, party of small government wants to literally be up inside people's bodies is not lost on me. That's that's very big government right there. <laughs> and so it's it's interesting to me how anytime there's a win, there's often a backlash mm. by that sort of, you know, dying powerful historical thing. And I, I wonder, you know, you mentioned earlier, you studied political and social thought at the University of Virginia, and you also have dual master's degrees, I mean, casual. But <laughs> I, I'm curious with your expertise, what you think of that sort of pendulum mm. shift, you know, that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And we see it, we, we elected Barack Obama, and then the world lost its mind and elected Donald Trump. And it's like, it's 
frightening. The 30% of people who like authoritarianism sort of rose up as we became more progressive feminist and democratic in America. So what what do you think, as an expert in these sort of social sciences, what do you think that's about? And and how do you think we begin to reframe for each other our, our, our gathering space in our country? So you said something really interesting at the outset, um, mm. which is we are at these gatherings and we experience this this collective way of expressing our values. Mm. And then we feel like, oh, we've did it. Mm. It's done. And then and then you go back out into the world and it's not done if, in fact, mm. it might be undone. It's like, look, we proved it. We proved we all right. care. Right, right, right. Let's what? go back to our, exactly, let's go. And the way I think about it is we, it is a false notion that we live in one world. Mm. We are simultaneously creating multiple worlds all at the same time that we're stepping in and out of that are competing against each other for notions of the truth, Mm. for notions of what is this world really, for notions of what is the right way to be, for notions of what is the right role of women in society. Mm. And so you have the Women's March where, you know, millions of women uh, came out and demonstrated and practiced what it was like to actually physically walk together and practice a different way of being. And then you have all of these, you know, anti-abortion legislations across the country, in Georgia and um, across the South. And part of what, in that context, I believe we are up against is underneath it, there is this question of, to me, what the battle underneath all of this is what is, what is the proper, quote unquote, what is the role of a woman in society. Mm. There was this article by Thomas Edsel maybe six or eight months ago, and he said, why has this issue, there's been a number of issues that over the last 30 years started as very controversial within the culture wars, and two of the three of them have basically become less controversial. And it was Mm. interracial marriage, it was gay marriage, and it was abortion. And he says two of those three have basically sorted themselves out. But Mm -hmm. abortion is the sticky wedge issue that keeps coming back again and again and again. Why? And he says, it has become, it it is a false notion that these are two competing value sets between the life of a child and the woman's choice. That's a distraction. He said, underneath all of this, what this actually, this deep, deep, deep argument about is what is the, what is the proper role of a woman in society? Mm -hmm. That is the battle. And so when you have these competing gatherings where some people are experiencing that to be a woman can be many things to be a woman can be having can be being a mother or not being a mother can being being a worker or not being a worker can Mm. be you know having all types of power um and then you have other gatherings that are replicating a very different notion of what it means to be a woman these are competing gatherings where different people are experiencing a different way of being in a different world that that group is promising to create. Like if you analyze a Trump rally, Mm. one of the reasons they were so powerful, I remember watching the circus during the campaign, during the 2016 campaign, and they would go and follow different candidates. And I remember watching one of the ones where they followed the, uh, they went into a Trump rally and there was an African, I think it was in South Carolina, but don't quote me on that. And it was an African-American guy walking in and they were like, why are you going into this Trump rally? And he was like, I'm curious. And he walked in 
and they interviewed people all on the way out, and everybody, including that guy, was like completely electrified. And I remember I watched that moment. I thought, oh my goodness, we are in trouble. And if you analyze, and I'm not the only one to say this, George Packer has written about this as well, and a number of people have. If you analyze what's actually happening at a Trump rally, it is a ritual, it is a collective ritual of identity. It is a collective ritual of practicing a world that they want to create, uh, right? The hats, the, the, even like the, the press, the line, you know, the press barrier and making them the enemy of the people and having this other, the, the way that they're basically talking and practicing a, a physical embodiment of who they are and who they are not. And it's this lived experience where you can all of a sudden experience like, oh my gosh, in this moment, I am seen. My grievances are talked about. It's okay to say the things that I never actually thought I should be saying and shouldn't be saying. But mm-hmm. there, there are these, these lived embodied practices of ritual tribe building. Mm-hmm. And on the left, which are your and my values, one of the opportunities and one of the practices for this next generation is to figure out how do we gather in the public square? How do we actually create alternative worlds that embody the America that we know is possible? How do we do that at a massive level, at a massive, at a, at a massive countrywide, national, local level where we are practicing the world we know exists if we can just stay there long enough. Mm. And part of the opportunity on the left is to create gatherings that are as emotionally, psychologically, intellectually powerful that are not where everybody is the same. That's practicing embodying the America that we are striving for, but showing that it's possible not just in the future, but Mm. right now. And the only element, I mean, one of the things about a Trump rally is it's this, it's an, it's this enormous release of emotion. And on mm. the left, the opportunity is to have a counterbalance, not of ideas, not of intellectual talking points, but a counterbalance, a release of emotion, mm. but around the opposite competing values of the America that we know is possible because we have lived it in small places, in our families, in our homes, in our, in our town halls, but actually on a massive global stage that says, no, 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 this is America. And there should be an opportunity for us to do that, an opportunity for love and community and connection rather than hate and grievance to be the center of what we believe in. Absolutely. And that that is a unifying cry. That is a rallying cry. Mm. And if we go back to our earlier conversation, that so then what are you against? To be for everybody actually does mean to be against people who are not for everybody. Mm. And... Part of the paradox of the left is this moral conviction to not line draw. But in not line drawing, mm. w- one is not actually able to say what one is for. That's so interesting. So like, one of the things, uh, and you know, I, my lens on all of this is gatherings. And one of the things that I found again and again and again is the gatherings that are transformative and meaningful have a specific disputable purpose. Mm. They know why they're gathering, and they're okay if not everybody agrees. Mm. It's specific. It's for specific people. It's not for everybody. They're comfortable excluding. They're not excluding based on race or class. They're excluding based on purpose. purpose. But basically, mm. and Barack Obama said this in his in Dreams of My Father, that his an aunt of this said to him, she was talking about his his father to, to him when he went and visited Kenya, and he said, you know the problem with your father was? He believed that if everybody is family, nobody is family. And Mm. what he was arguing for is that 
you know, to, in order to create a community, a line has to be drawn. And one of the most interesting questions I believe on the left and of what I want for in the future of America is what is the line? What does it mean to be American? American is not actually everything. Mm-hmm. It is a very specific set of ideas that have been rhyming and rolling around for the last 400 years that have been a joke in certain quarters. If you read Baldwin, like one of the reasons James Baldwin is so powerful is because he's saying, I am arguing for the fulfillment of the American dream, right? Not for the abdication of it. Mm. And right now, part of the what uh, gatherings and political movements and visions are powerful when they're specific, when they're disputable, and when they exclude, but not based on identity, based on belief and value systems. Mm. And again, even that is complicated. That, mm-hmm. that, that doesn't mean religion. Sure. Right? But it means need, meaning, needing to know who you are not as much as needing to know who you are. But I like that idea where you said you will exclude based on purpose. Mm-hmm. Because for me... You know, much much like the way that you grew up, I grew up in a family that is multi-faith and also agnostic. And uh, I mean, it led me to study so many other religions, to want to learn about so many other cultures. Mm. I'm really grateful that my parents were so open to me doing that um, and that I went to a school that had so much diversity and so much respect for diversity in it. You know, I'm, I'm aware that I have the privilege of exposure mm. uh, and, and, and kind exposure to so many other types of people. I have for so long had that feeling of everyone is family. There's no such thing of, as other people's children. Your, your plight is my plight. Our liberty is absolutely bound together. Mm-hmm. But what I've had to get really solid on in the last couple of years, and especially when, you know, you, you cast a wide net as far as an audience in the way that because of my career I have now, people will really come for me in ways mm. that are sometimes very frightening and often very aggressive. And, you know, you really can't please everybody. And I finally mm. a while back said, you know what, I'm here for everyone. But if you think that my friends don't deserve what you deserve because they look different than you, mm-hmm. I'm not here for you, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I will have a conversation with you. If I were to be invited to your dinner table for a, for a purposeful gathering, mm-hmm. maybe I would sit if I could guarantee, if you could guarantee mm-hmm. to me that you would at least respect me enough to have a dialogue mm-hmm. and not an argument. Mm-hmm. I will dialogue with anyone, virtually anyone. But when I am out doing my work in the world and when I am thinking about who I welcome into my spaces, I absolutely draw a line mm-hmm. based on what we believe purpose to be. I think this is one of the most interesting arguments we're having as a country right now. Our mutual friend, Glennon, right before Thanksgiving, posted this thing on Instagram, and I won't quote it exactly, but it was a repost from somebody, but it was like ways to to not have an anxiety-fueled Thanksgiving mm-hmm. this year. And it was like a five-point list, and it was mm-hmm. like, don't invite your racist relatives. Mm-hmm. And um, simultaneously, there was a... Um, there was a, I'm now forgetting, uh, I think it was the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, arguing about like how and why at this moment more than ever it's important to actually engage. Mm-hmm. And what is this dispute about at some level, right? It's mm. a cult, it's, it's happening in all of our contexts. It's basically saying, so conflict resolution, which is my field, in any type of dialogue, 90% of the preparation happens before anyone arrives. Yes. And part of what happens is there are preconditions of what are the terms around which I'm willing to engage. Mm -hmm. And 
there's a line in any of these Thanksgiving meals, and I, you know, I struggle with this myself, which is when when is it okay to come together with people who share different beliefs than you? And and versus where is the line that one needs to actually self-protect? Mm. And I think that part I think the verdict is out at some level, particularly within our families, because if you if we exclude all of the people who my husband, Anand Girdadas, has this kind of phrase. He, ta- he talks about the woke and the still waking. And he says, mm-hmm. if, you, if we exclude the people who are still waking, we can't actually ex- expand the circle of the woke. <laughs> mm. But on the other hand, it's a uh, one needs to feel safe. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, when any type of and, – and the reason I think gatherings are helpful is because we can talk kind of vaguely about hypothetical experiences or community. But I think – and every time you are a host or a guest, but particularly any time you want to bring people together, one of the reasons our gatherings are kind of vague and diluted is because we have focused more on form than first asking, why am I doing this? So a birthday party, you think like, well, I'm here to celebrate my birthday. And, you, and we kind of like assume like candles on a birthday cake and don't necessarily think about all of the thousands of ways one could celebrate a birthday party or a wedding. And all of a sudden you think about the form rather than the ritual or the dress or the colors. Like the question, like, what are your colors? To me is like the, the leading indicator that we are having the wrong conversation about mm. how to have weddings, right? Versus like, how are you thinking about organizing the ritual? How are you thinking mm-hmm. about combining your belief systems? How, what parts of yourselves are you going to show for your, to your community and what parts are you going to keep hidden? What is just for your partnership and what is actually important for the community to come together? Why are you actually having a wedding versus going to City Hall? Is it to bring together and unite your tribe that will never again be in the same room and when the going gets tough, they're going to have a stake in the fight of your marriage? Mm-hmm. Or is it to have little sub-family reunions where your college buddies are at one table and your, fam- your cousins are at another and everybody gets to kind of on your, on your bill have a nice dinner? <sighs> and a huge part of any gathering is to first ask, what is the need and why am I doing this? Who is this for first? Mm-hmm. And to allow it to be specific and disputable. I'll stay on weddings for a second just because it's kind of like this like deeply universal example. So, so a wedding, you know, many of the fights that happen during weddings are proxy wars about purpose. So a mother wants to invite their, her college, her, her colleague, and you want to invite your old college roommate, and there's one seat left. At some level, that's not actually a question around, around who's, who's closer. It's actually this deeper question of who is this wedding for first? At the end of the day, is this first and foremost to honor one's parents? And in some cultures, it's sort of like this is actually the final right of parents where they, in India, you know, this is certainly true. You've kind of like done your duties once you've gotten your children married. Mm -hmm. Um, Or the parents are part of it, but this is actually an opportunity to center the couple. And those are two different visions of a wedding. And they're either is fine, but, but choose. And similarly, in, in whether it's our dinner parties or our board meetings or our birthday parties, to just say, hey, I want to bring my friends together, it's fine, but many of our gatherings are kind of blah. So, mm-hmm. you know, we are at a moment where we're suffering from, from isolation, we're lonelier than ever, and when we get together, it's frankly – it's not even necessarily enough to get together, right? If everyone's on their phones or you're not particularly having a meaningful conversation, you're talking about the weather or you're, I don't know, you're exchanging business cards and feeling like you're, people are peering over your shoulders, like you can actually go to a gathering and feel deeply isolated. Yeah. And so part of what I'm arguing for is to say, 
if we are at a moment where we are going through a crisis of meaning and of community and of connection, how do we actually take this as a sacred responsibility to when you decide to bring people together, you make it worthy of their time? Mm. Um, And is that the kind of thing that you begin learning about studying organizational design? Yeah, I mean, I think part part of what my, you know, when I studied organizational design, one of the things that most taught me was about power and group dynamics. How so? So one of the one of the fathers of organizational design, design is a man named um, Edgar Schein. And in the 70s, he and his colleagues studied these groups, this phenomenon called T-groups. And they were groups of people who agreed to sign up to spend a week together, like 12 hours a day. Without a facilitator, without any norms, without any rules, they basically had to come together in a room and figure out what to do and committed to doing it for seven days in a row. And he'd watch these group experiences unfold. And in the beginning, and different groups, you're kind of polite or you're, you know, seating to one another. And after a while, you're saying, okay, what are we going to actually do with this time? And the group, he basically says every group for it to find equilibrium has to contend with these two parts their relationship to authority or power, mm. and their relationship to intimacy. Who's in charge here? And how safe is it to show myself? Mm. And that core insight was deeply helpful to me to understand how groups actually work, but also how gatherings work. So simple example, you're in a family, family context. You're deciding to go out for dinner. And in a microcosm, who decides? Is it the young sister who always gets her way? Is it the dad who always decides, I want Mexican, I want Chinese, I want Italian? Who decides and how do you actually make that decision? So if you think about authority just simply as decision-making, how do decision-making happen in a group? You're at a dinner party and, and there's not enough structure or context or the host isn't actually saying, like, welcome, this is who you each are. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm in a moment where I'm really thinking about what is home. I'm an immigrant and at a moment where I feel like I'm not sure if I'm wanted in this country, something on my mind is home. What does home mean to you? Like they're, mm. the, what they're doing is they're actually orienting the group to have a meaningful conversation. They're making a decision for the group to say, I gathered you, then this is a moment of focus. This is how we can meaningfully connect. They're actually coordinating the group. Whereas if you sit in a dinner party, and this is true in like any context, a group has to kind of figure out how it's going to work together. And that work could be dancing, that work could be talking, that work could be making you know, decisions about the future of the oil industry. But at some level, every gathering is a group of people, three or more. So I define a gathering as anytime three or more people come together for a purpose. It's to figure out how, what are we going to talk about? What's safe here? How much am I going to show of myself? Who's in charge? And if it goes off the rails, am I going to be safe? And so organizational design, but particularly that idea of of power, but also of intimacy, deeply helped me give language and a lens to what I instinctively kind of knew and understood from my own life, but made sense of it in a way that I realized, oh, the role of the host is to actually use their power, his or her power, ahead of time to say, this is why we're gathering. This is what I want from you. This is what it means to be a successful guest here. And then in the moment to connect their guests to each other, to protect mm-hmm. them, to equalize them. Um, I, I'll, I'll, I think I may have shared this when we were together live, but I'll share the story because I think it illustrates this point in a really simple way. A woman approached me, a woman named Jancy Dunn, when The Art of Gathering came out last year, wrote me and said, I have to write an article for Real Simple Magazine about how to art of gathering a a dinner party. 
And um, and I think she thought I was going to say, like, put the fish knife here, put the wine here, you know, serve this. And I asked her the same question that I ask everybody, which is, what is a need in your life that by bringing a specific group of people you might be able to address? And she mm-hmm. thought, and she was like, for a dinner party? I said, yeah, just like for a dinner party. And she said, well, I'm a worn out mom. I was at a friend's house the other day and she cut me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich into triangles and gave mm. me baby carrot sticks. And I burst into tears. <sighs> And I said, why did you burst into tears? And she said, because I'm a worn out mom and I realized it was the first time in a long time that I felt taken care of. And I said, and she said, what if I hosted a dinner party for my other worn out moms? And I said, great, give it a name. And she called it the worn out mom's hootenanny. And I said, give it a rule, going back to our conversation about rules. And she said, if you talk about your kids, you have to take a shot. (laughs) And she's like, okay, now do I send it out on paperless post or evite? And I said, just put it in an email. You're worn out. Like, make it embodied. Make it simple. Put in the subject line, worn out mom's hootenanny. Say what the rule is and, and send it out. And she sent it to six friends, six women friends, six mom friends. And they all wrote RSVP'd back yes within 45 minutes. She, like, texted me later and was like, oh, my gosh, they're so excited. So, and then they did it. And why, like, all of a sudden she took something that she thought she was trying to perfect the form, a dinner party, right? You kind of imagine Mm. this, like, stiff back, like, chopping your fish in the right way and having the wine glass on the table. And she shifted the lens of what she was trying to perfect. She wasn't trying to perfect the form. She was trying to actually perfect or inquire, what is the need that I have? Mm. Who else shares that? And how might we address it together? And it was a purpose that was specific. It was disputable. Our dad's invited. Not tonight. You know, what if I don't want to take a shot on a Tuesday night? Too bad. Don't come this time. Mm. But because it was specific and disputable, it was seeable, right? Mm. People got excited about it. There was a there there. And the reason I love this example is because going back to our earlier conversation about the role of women in society, it was this interestingly radical act as well. Why? Because she was basically saying, just because we are mothers doesn't mean that when we come together, we have to talk about our children. Mm. Just because we share this identity as women doesn't mean that that's the only way we can talk about anything in the world. We are going to take this conversation off the table and we're going to talk about all of the other parts of ourselves Mm. that are also within this complex individual. But so often get passed over for that first part of the conversation. Absolutely. And that goes to this like quietly radical question of what is the woman's world and what is the woman's role in society and can you be many things? And maybe people would be more comfortable with us being many things if we had the space to talk about the many things that we are. Absolutely. And same Hmm. with men, right? I think one of the goals that one of like gatherings and conversations are powerful when you don't try to make the group the same. Yeah. You try to complicate the individual. Hmm. And then you give them permission to be complicated. Absolutely. You said something earlier that interests me when we talk about the specificity of gathering and examples like this. You said that a gathering doesn't count if everyone's on their phones. <laughs> what do you, as a as a researcher, what do you see as the shift? Because it seemed that gatherings were more natural, whether or not they actually had a direction, mm-hmm. uh, prior to technology, prior to the ability to just scroll on our phones. Mm-hmm. So what do you see the impact of technology being on on the art of gathering? I don't know if gatherings were more natural or not, but they were definitely more present. And mm. part of that is because we couldn't escape, even if we wanted to. <laughs> 
<laughs> right? right? It's not saying they were better, but there was nowhere else to go except literally like leave, right? You can go to the bathroom, you could leave. Yeah. And part of the danger of gatherings right now is even when we're in person, even when we're physically in front of one another, we can still escape into the most interesting other worlds in a flick of a, in the swipe of a thumb. And because, and Tristan Harris talks about this, because there are thousands of engineers working to make us more and more addicted to these phones, etiquette isn't strong enough to prevent us from looking at our phones, right? We're actually addicted. And so part of the, um, you know, I had a, um, a Colombian woman say to me the other day, she said, I was so moved. I, I went, she, she, she went to a birthday party where there was a rule that there was no phones. You couldn't, you couldn't be on your phone. And she said, I was so moved. It was so amazing to have everybody like talking to each other and looking up at each other and just engaged. I have not experienced that in a very long time. And this is a woman who's in her 50s. She's Colombian. She's an immigrant. And she comes from these like collective cultures where, at least in my mind, gatherings are like these deeply communal present functions. And I said to her, what do you mean? I, 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 like, I take inspiration from how you gather. And she says, not anymore. All of our gatherings, even when they're multi-generational, everybody is on their phone. So this has spread. This is ubiquitous. This is intergenerational. This is universal. And this is deeply dangerous. And so part, I mean, and there's people who are trying to, you know, there's rules. Going back to the rules is the phone stack rule. You put your phone in the middle of the table if you're at a restaurant with friends or colleagues. The first person who looks at their phone has to foot the bill. Right? It's a Tumblr rule. There's a bread company that now has a box that they put on a table and, and it blocks cell phone signal. So anyone who comes within seven feet of it, your phone doesn't work. And part of this is like when, our, when we actually are addicted to our phones, you need something stronger than etiquette or norms to not actually look at it. But also, you need to be pretty, pretty interesting. You need to find the relevant conversation. You know, if all of a sudden you're, if no one is actually talking about anything interesting, it is actually much more fun to go on Instagram or go on the New York Times or go on whatever you read. But if somebody's talking about their relationship to money and what the, what the early stories that their parents told them informed them about whether or not we were people who were frugal or we were people who were, had, you know, or money is evil or money is power or money is whatever the things you think about money, all of a sudden you're going to put your phone away and look up and think, huh, what are the stories implicitly or explicitly that I grew up? That's something I'm trying to figure out. That's worthy of my attention. So this is also like the stakes are high to find conversation that's meaningful and relevant, not like so that we can all say that we had a nice night, but because we're all trying to figure out how to live and we're looking to each other to, <sighs> to answer some of those questions. And if we're not doing that at our gatherings, what are we doing? So how do you define a meaningful connection? Um, that's a great question. I think it's, it's an ability to, to allow yourself to be seen and to see. Mm. And... You know, there's this old saying, you know, parties are to see and be seen, right? But it, but it actually means like, who was there? What are you wearing? Like, you know, everyone showed their face. Well, it's one thing to be observed. Correct. It's another thing to be seen. Correct. And we are so hungry to be seen. Mm. But in most of our gatherings, it stays on that surface level. And in an Instagram age, it stays on that even more because it's a visual medium and what you're rewarded for is actually just the visual. How, If you have a meaningful conversation, how do you capture that on Instagram? Frankly, you probably shouldn't capture it on Instagram, right? It's, it's actually – that's what intimacy is. Um, but I think a meaningful connection is, is any time – and this can also be in a work context – when people are actually talking about first something that's relevant – 
something that affects them, and something in which you can see the other for who they are or trying to be, or their many sides and selves, and something in, in, a, in a moment in which you are also being willing to be seen for your many selves, but also for the parts of us that are still being baked, Right? Like we are each works in progress. And so part of the reason uh, this doesn't happen anymore because everyone's on their phones, but on airplanes or train rides, you know, years ago, you would, I would have these long epic conversation with strangers where you kind of tell them your life story. You, you know, you, you share all of these things that you would never tell somebody in your own world. Mm. Why? Because with a stranger, you can practice different sides of yourselves. You can be complicated. You can practice different avatars. Um, you, can, you, can, you can try things out, and they don't have a stake in the fight of your identity. Yeah, there's no gravity when you share with a stranger. There's no gravity when you... Why? In part because our identities are communal, right? There's this African phrase, uh, Ubuntu, I am mm-hmm. who I am because you are who you are. And that's a, a, it's a statement of interdependence. But it's also a statement of imprisonment, Hmm. right? So like when you're embedded in a community and all of a sudden if I've always played a specific role and I'm the – the, I'm the good daughter, and so my brother can be, I'm making this up, my brother can be the rebellious child, and all of a sudden, if I'm done being the good child, it not only shifts, it shifts everybody else's identity if I start rebelling, because then they have to figure out what are they going to be in this system. Mm-hmm. And so part our identities are also collective, and they're intertwined with each other, mm-hmm. which is why gatherings are opportunities for collective identity formation. Mm-hmm. But gatherings, I always say this, gatherings are not just an, a practice in the we, right? If you're just practicing the we, if gatherings are all we, that is a cult, right? You're, you're, everybody is exactly the same and there's no opportunity to be anything different. But if you're only an I, you're a federation. And so the, the balance of all group life and gatherings is how do you have both space for the I and mm. space for the we? There's a teacher and a philosopher named Thomas Hubel who talks about these twin polarities in group life called these two forces in any type of group, which is the desire to belong and the desire to become. Mm. How do I be in a group and belong to it? But also, where is there a space for me to become what I'm supposed to be? And what is the dance between those two things? Yeah. Paul Tillich, who's a Christian theologian from the 50s, talked about the same a sense of two ideas. And, and he says, all group life is defined by these two forces, these two twin forces, power and love. And he says, power is the desire to self-actualize. It's the I. It's the, it's the self. At the extreme, Hitler was practicing self-actualization. It was totally evil. Mm. But it was, it was, it's power. Power is the, is the I no matter what. Mm. And love is the desire for the separated to be in union, the separated mm. to be whole. And he says, all group life is basically these two twin forces. And, but power without love is abusive. Mm-hmm. And love without power is anemic. Mm. It's without life. And we tend to swing in our organizations and our family systems between anemia and abuse. Right? I talked earlier about healthy, unhealthy peace. We mm-hmm. also we swing between unhealthy peace, which is like I don't feel safe saying what I actually want to say because I want to belong to this place, or unhealthy conflict or exiting, right? I can't actually be who I am here, so I'm going to leave. Mm. And part of what we're arguing for and fighting for and grappling with demo- in, in our democracy, in our republic, is this dance between the I and the we. And America, in my mind, is so unique because it's, it's, it's the most radical historical experiment to say that the we doesn't have to be a monolith. The common element of our we 
is that we actually are a lot of eyes, but that mm. we believe in that. We fight for our abilities to each be an I, and that is what makes us a we that's different than any other country in the world. That's incredible. I'm curious, because that's a, that's a big, big thought, and I think that you phrased it perfectly. And for some reason, I still have the image of two strangers talking on a train. <laughs> Maybe because it's such a, an enormous idea that you're talking about. And then, and then I think about the little eyes. And I think about the truth of how easy it can be to share deeply with someone who maybe you'll never speak to again mm-hmm. and maybe sometimes easier than in the conflict within mm-hmm. your own house or family or friendships. Why do you think that FaceTime sitting face to face with someone is so special? Why is that so transformative? Why is that so necessary for us? Because we're all on these things Mm -hmm. on our phones all the time, but they don't make us feel any closer to Mm -hmm. people. So what is it about being face to face? I mean, being face to face is complicated Mm -hmm. in part because it's generative. You say something to me and I have to figure out right now what I want to say back. You say something to me and I have to think about what my answer is. And if I pause, unlike a text message, unlike an email, when I want to think about like my best comeback or the the proper way to say something, if I pause, you can actually watch and read my expressions and see what I'm actually feeling. Being in person is actually deeply vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And we are losing the practice of that vulnerability by being able to do so much of our communication asynchronistically, meaning at a different time. You text me, I can decide when I want to respond. Mm-hmm. You Instagram me, I can decide when I want to respond. If I want to acknowledge if I can see it or not. If I've seen it, but you don't know if I've seen it, right? There's all these gradations mm-hmm. that these engineers have basically baked into the user design. And being face-to-face, yet the reason why it's so powerful, in t- particularly in terms of intimacy, is because but also in terms of uh, in terms of power is like we can create something together through our conversation through our ideas through what we're talking about that is actually v- almost impossible to do in other mediums so if you do it inversely like i work with a lot of companies and organizations and they always say like oh my gosh we meet all the time you want us to gather more and i say no 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 i want you to gather better mm. and gathering better usually means gathering less And it means increasing the stakes for what is worthy for an in-person meeting. And you know what's worthy for an in-person meeting? Either A, doing something that's generative, meaning you can't do it over email. It's too complicated to talk about over email, over text message. Like we actually need to build and sort through a complicated thing together that requires us to be in person. Or you're making a decision. And otherwise, you shouldn't meet. Put it in an email. In-person time is sacred. Mm. And we've made it banal. So mm. when online gatherings, online interaction is so interesting, right? At the, at the, I can swipe through and I feel like I'm in Chrissy Teigen's living room, right? I can swipe through and mm. I can see what Donald Trump is thinking. I can swipe through and literally anybody in the world, I can all, I can, I'm literally in their bathroom. It actually deeply increases the stakes that when I'm in person, not how do you be more interesting or how do you be more provocative, but how do I actually not just be an avatar or a version of myself that I'm trying to show to you, but what's actually going on here? Mm. Do you think maybe that's why we've seen such a booming increase in conference culture? Because conferences, when I started going to conferences, there were like Yeah, they weren't a thing. (laughs) They weren't a thing. People thought it was weird. Yeah. And now every weekend there's a conference somewhere. Do you think that 
it's because we're craving in-person experience and learning. Absolutely. And, and thought-provoking chatter. Absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's 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 a number of different things. I think we are longing to be with each other in more meaningful ways. Um, I think that there are groups of uh, our generation who's who's taking that to a different level. Like the dinner party is a group of 20 and 30-somethings who have figured out that there aren't a lot of places where you can actually talk about grief and loss. And so mm-hmm. there's these, these communities and gatherings where you can actually talk about very specific things. But I also think conferences are on the rise in part because, unfortunately, I think people read less right? Like you used to Mm. learn about stuff by reading a book and now you want to go and sit to a panel and just tell people, you know, hear what people have to say. You know, Mm. ideas conferences are are, are a lazy man's way of reading, (laughs) Mm. right? Like on one hand, it's a way to come together and be together. But on the other hand, it's also because in in an age where we're actually reading less because we're busier, our work culture is is extremely dominating, we're also more distracted. Coming together and actually putting our phones away and and being in person together is also a way of actually focusing on something for more than five minutes. But you know, and brands and companies are doing this. People realize they're also cre- uh, craving relationship and experience. And to do that in person can be powerful. Hmm. That's really interesting. Do you have advice if if people listening are planning to go to a conference, if they want to experience that? Is there something they should be looking for maybe a little deeper than just who's speaking? What what should they really be looking at when they look at a lineup mm-hmm. and figuring out where to invest their very valuable time? Mm-hmm. I mean, at the deepest level, I think the question beyond, like, how do I navigate a conference? Like, the question behind that is like, how do I spend my time? Mm-hmm. Right? A conference is just one version of that. And I think one of the most powerful questions to answer that is, what is the biggest need in the world that you might have the passion and capacity to address? Mm. What, is, what do you see in the world that angers you, that, that, that makes you interested? When you read a newspaper, what are the articles that you read actually all the way to the end and what like make your eyes glaze over? Like pay attention to that. What are the, and, then, and then on the flip side of that, internally, what are, what are you passionate about and what makes you angry? What do you have a capacity? What do you have energy to do? What are your skills? Mm-hmm. And to navigate between those two things, what's a real need in the world? So you're not just navel gazing and thinking like, oh, I'm interested in all these things, but not actually going out and colliding with the world. But also, how do I actually do this in a way that, is, that is, I'm interacting with things that make me come alive? So when you're looking at a conference schedule to look at it and look over it and say like, which of these... Um, which of these topics either address a need in the world that is interesting to me or that I would like to actually address or be part of the solution, or which of these address to either one of my pa- passions or my capacity that I'd like to actually improve or to experience. But I think the other thing is conferences, you know, the host is going to program whatever they're going to program. But you have an opportunity of what is the question you ask people when you're in the hallway? What is the question that when you're up at the coffee table or you're sitting at a lunch group or you're, you know, finding a random group at dinner, like how do you actually have meaningful conversation? Um, how do you, in a you know, a group of eight people go together, conferences do this all the time. You go out to go out to a local restaurant and find a group of eight. And it goes back to this authority and intimacy thing. If there's mm-hmm. not instruction at some level around how do you actually want to host this conversation, a group has to figure it out. And too many groups basically, in a, you're, you come together for a conference, you have a shared interest, group of eight, and everybody just sits and talks to the person next to them. 
Mm. Right? What if it? And it takes a risk. It takes some guts and the courage to say, "Hey, I, I, what, what if we all talk about like the moment that we find ourselves in, or what if we, I'd love to hear like what I'd love to hear like what is a fear you have at this moment of your career, mm. or I'd love to hear about like what's a transition that you're at, or and again like saying something that's vulnerable oneself. Like I'm at a moment of transition, and when I'm really trying to figure out like what do I like, what are my core values? Or I lost my job and I'm realizing, like, what is it that I actually, what is my identity apart from my job? You know, wh- what would you all say? So finding a question that's relevant to you and having the courage to ask a group, to, f- to focus the group on having a meaningful conversation. And guests, you know, this is called the art of gathering. It's not called the art of hosting because I believe guests have a lot of power. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of power to shape a conversation. You have a mm-hmm. lot of power to ding your glass and say, hey, how would you guys, hey, wh- what do you think about if we talk about this? Mm-hmm. But it's it, it takes interruption. It takes a moment of courage. But then afterwards, people are so grateful to actually have had a meaningful conversation. Mm-hmm. That's so cool. So you're sort of answering my next question, which was what are ways that everyone listening at home can start? making some changes, big or small, in the gatherings that they have, whether it's around their dinner table with their family or the next group meal or hang that they're attending. I'm I'm curious, is it planning a dinner or, or planning a work lunch? Where do you suggest people start? So first start by asking every single time, why am I doing this? Mm. Why am I doing this? What is the purpose of this gathering? What is mm. the purpose of this dinner party? What is the purpose of brunch. <laughs> because it then asks, like, who am I inviting? Mm. So is there, I had a friend who wanted to quit her job and she was at a job where most of her peers, because it was a really intense job, were from her office. And there was a lot, there was a culture to not leave. And every time you're about to leave, they threw more money at you. They threw more, you know, you get, get a raise. Like they're, they're experts at having you stay in the system. You know, most law firms are like this. Most consulting firms are like this. And she decided that for that year, she would host a gathering. It was towards the end of the year, and it was kind of like her holiday party as she thought about it. But she said, the biggest need I have right now is to find the people in my life who make courageous decisions and surround myself with them Mm -hmm. so that they hold me to account to leaving this damn job. And so her need was an injection of courage. And so Mm. that year, she didn't say like, what do I want to, she didn't start with the questions, what do I want to serve or who do I want to invite? She started with the question, what is the purpose of this thing? What is the need in my life right now? Mm. And so she invited eight friends, eight people in her life. They didn't all know each other. And the invitation we all got, that's how I knew about it, was you are people who have always made courageous decisions despite what people around you said. I admire the way you make decisions and I'm struggling with the decision I'm trying to make. I really want to quit my job and I feel so addicted to it Mm. and I'm scared to leave and I want you to hold me to account. Could you come to my house this year for my for my party and bring one piece of inspiration and one piece of wisdom so that within six months I leave this job? Mm. And that was a beautiful way. Like she created meaning. She honored all of us, but she's also winking and she's saying like, courage is contagious, but also fear is contagious. She did not invite the people in her life as saying, are you sure you didn't want to lose that, leave that job? Right. Are you sure you just want to, you know, just stay one more year? And and part of, part of like, so for any gathering, ask first, what is the purpose? What is the need? And then ask, like, is, is that purpose specific enough? Is that purpose disputable enough? You're having a pool party. It's a pool party you have every year. And say, like, okay, why are we having this pool party? It's like, I don't know, just because, like, it's a pool party. It's fun. It's like, no, okay, but really, if you're like, go dig a little deeper, why do you have it? Well, I guess it's to sort of, like, mark the coming of summer. Well, why do you always invite your neighbors every year? And I was like, you really dig my Well, I guess it's because I want to show 
my children that strangers aren't scary. I want to create a neighborhood that like mimics what I grew up in. Mm. Like that's an interesting reason. The rest of the gathering can look exactly the same, but all of a sudden underneath you say that in an invitation and people feel you've, you haven't changed the activity, but you've changed the meaning of it. Mm-hmm. And you've invited every person in the neighborhood to come to say, are you also up for, 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 for creating a neighborhood in which we show our children and each other that strangers aren't scary? Mm-hmm. So it's not rocket science and it's not ice luges and fireworks. It's basically like meaning comes from an actual authentic need that you invite others to either share with you or help you solve. I love that. And you really just have to sit with yourself for a moment and ask yourself the question underneath. Correct. The instinct. Correct. That is exactly right. Hmm. So it's not saying spend more time. It's often as a practice, once you become conscious about it, it's actually less time because you spend less time worrying about the logistics, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, there's this Martha Stewart party planning guide that's like 27 steps to practice the perfect party. And 24 of the 27 of them is about the preparation of stuff, like prepare the crudités, prepare like three days before, two days before you chop the crudités and put them in the, put them in the, like the, the fresher in the fridge so that they stay crisp and take them out. Like all of these old archetypal ways of hosting was this, was this assumption that to care for people, spend a lot of time on the preparation of things. Mm-hmm. the mastery of the shaping of things. And in this new generation where, first of all, women are playing roles out in the working world, people are don't have time to do stuff like this but still want meaningful connection and meaningful gathering, it's actually saying still spend time and care, but the deepest way to actually spend time and care is to just first ask, what is the need in my life mm-hmm. that by bringing together another a group of specific people for a specific moment in time, we could actually address? And part of meaningful connection is to actually say, hey, this is actually a real need in my life. Maybe you share it too. We live in a time also because, you know, one of the things I found in a lot of my research was that rituals are powerful when they're, when they're specific, mm-hmm. but powerful rituals come from specific sub-communities. So like Javanese tooth filing ceremonies or Tamilian Brahminical red thread tie- tying ceremonies where there's like a very specific ritual. You like literally like file a tooth as like a rite of passage or you get a red thread tied around your wrist. Why did that work? Because everybody in the room believed the same thing, understood what the red thread meant, believed in the same God, ate mm-hmm. the same thing, avoided the same meat. And so it worked as a ritual because you were a monolithic group. As we're becoming more diverse, a good thing, as we're becoming, as we have different roles to play, a good thing. All of a sudden, trying not to offend each other, our gatherings have become diluted. Mm. We've lost our rituals because specific rituals come from specific subcultures. Mm. And so the opportunity that we now have in our modern world is to invent modern rituals where people don't have to be the same or believe the same things, but can come together for a a specific moment in time and meaningfully connect around new ways of being. Yes. There was a summer, and I'm trying to get back to doing it, but there was a summer where I managed to be home for two and a half straight months, which hasn't happened to me in years. And every Friday, we would host a Shabbat dinner at my house. But the whole point, because I grew up in a multi-faith family, and so many people who I know did, was that it was a non-denominational Shabbat. Mm. So every Friday, someone, I would always ask someone to speak, and whether it was a friend actually reading from the Torah or a friend who's a meditation coach leading everyone through a breath exercise, my friend, you know, who is an incredible Syrian academic reading from the Quran, whatever anyone wanted to show up with, 
It could be a poem. It could be scripture. Mm -hmm. Show up and offer something that feels sacred to you to this group. And that gives you the jumping off point for this experience on a Friday night. And same thing. It was like, everybody put your phones away. We're hanging out, and and it wasn't really about the stuff. Mm-hmm. It was a pot, it was always a potluck because mm-hmm. that way, if ten people or thirty people showed up, we'd have enough food. Mm-hmm. And it was really special, and it's something that I miss, mm-hmm. and that I'm working on reinstituting in in my life. And it, to your point, it's a way for everyone to belong. Yes in a system, in in an old system, in a new way. And I love the question that you ask. And I think, you know, if you're listeners, you don't need to know a Syrian academic to to, to do mm-hmm. this. The yeah. question you ask is, bring something that is sacred to you. Mm-hmm. To me, that's a deeply modern question. It's a brilliant question because you're actually sharing and allowing people to have different definitions of the sacred. Mm-hmm. But the line that you're drawing is that an assumption that something is sacred to you? Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful example of reimagining questions that allow us to gather meaningfully without having to be the same. Yes. Yeah, and then no nihilistic person who thinks the world is garbage is coming to that dinner. Yeah. So yeah. again, there is exclusion based on purpose. Absolutely. Um, there is one thing that I really want to touch on because I just think that it's amazing. You helped with this sustained dialogue campus network. Uh-huh. And I just think <laughs> it's done such your a, research. <laughs> yeah. I just think it's such a cool thing. And and before we wrap up, I, I want to talk about it because I, I think that it's something that college students who are listening would love to know about. So can you walk us through that? Um, so, you know, I'm, bi- I'm biracial. I almost 20 years ago, I went to the University of Virginia. And the first question that I would be asked was, what are you? Mm. And I actually literally didn't understand the question. I, I, I meant I was a first year. I, I, you know, people didn't say like, what are you studying? What dorm you live in? Like that was often a first question. And what it meant was like, what race are you? Mm-hmm. And I found it a very bizarre question. I found it an upsetting question. But I also realized that this was a, a question like any, in any context you go in, the first question or the second question people ask you is a signal to what matters there. Mm. Could be, you could be completely disagree with what matters there, but it's a signal of what matters there. Right. So in the U.S., one of the uh, often European friends or colleagues will say, like, I think it's so gauche that the first question Americans ask you is like, what do you do? Right. And and it's just like it's a cultural tick that signals what matters here, in part because what we do is actually often decided based on what our interests are. Right. It's also a different conception of work. Mm-hmm. It doesn't actually mean how much money do you make, which is actually what it often means in more traditional societies. But anyway, I digress. So at UVA, I was frustrated by this question. And I was interested in it. And I started taking classes on race. I started, I, I got a fellowship to study the history of race and gender at UVA. And I ran into two students, Chantal Fiebig and um, Neilan Parker, who were older. And they said to me, Priya, if you have a problem, UVA is about student self-governance. Do something about it. Mm. And I thought, I'm a, I'm a first year. Like, I can't do something about it. I don't even understand this place. And they're like, no, 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 no. Like, fresh eyes are actually really, really important because mm. you haven't yet drunk the Kool-Aid. Do something about it. And so I, I, I studied what had been done before and different initiatives students had taken. And there was this organization called Grounds for Discussion. And I interviewed some of the, um, some of the students who worked on them. And they said, we had these amazing dialogues for a night, we'd open up all these questions and finally really starting talking about race, which has this really problematic history at UVA, but it's still really presently problematic. And then everyone would go home and it wouldn't last. 
And I was like, okay, that's an interesting insight. And I researched and researched, and actually through my mother, learned about this process called sustained dialogue. And mm-hmm. it was a process that was developed by a man named Hal Saunders. He was Kissinger's assistant secretary of state. He, mm-hmm. he drafted the camp, the camp David peace accords. He literally was part of the team that brokered peace. And he served multiple, president, uh, multiple presidential administrations. And then at the end of um, his service, he realized that even while he brokered peace between governments, that relationships between citizens didn't necessarily change. Like the mistrust was still there. The relationships were still problematic. And so he spent the second half of his professional life basically looking at how do you actually begin to change relationships between citizens on the ground. And he worked, he co-chaired the longest bilateral citizens dialogue during the Cold War between Soviets and Americans. He co-chaired it with Eugenie Primakov, who ended up becoming the first Russian premier. And he basically realized that when groups of people come together and are committed to changing their relationships, not the topics, not discussing the issues, not brokering peace, but actually the underlying relationships, they develop the capacity to then actually imagine new solutions for the country. And he happened to be a uh, mm. alumni. Uh, uh, he happened to be on the board of trustees at Princeton University. And he, two students, approached him. This is 1999. Teddy Nemiroff and David Tukey, and they said, "We want to. Could we try sustain dialogue here? Could we try it at Princeton? Can, is there? Could we use this process that you've used literally in like Tajikistan and with Soviet citizens, like at Princeton?" And he said, "Let's try it." And they ended up writing a. a, a like a pamphlet called Diving In about how do you actually create these dialogue groups to see if people could actually have the conversations across difference that usually happen behind closed doors, not with groups, you know, not like black students talk about it and, you know, one side, white students talk about another, Latinos talking about another. Could we come together consciously and have conversations around race? Um, and I learned about that process and met Hal Saunders and said, will you bring, will you help us bring us to UVA? And, um, a friend of mine, Jacqueline Switzer, and I uh, launched it September 10th, 2001. Wow. And then 9-11 happened the next day. So it was kind of like right place at the right time where, again, the power of a gathering, like launched literally meant we sent a letter out to the community saying sustained dialogue is happening here, right? It was an invitation is this opening salvo. It's a psychological promise that the space exists. Mm. And so because the psychological space existed, it was filled and, and, and it became this training grounds for me and for many of us to figure out how do you actually create a meaningful, safe space across difference? How do you host conversations mm-hmm. that allow people to be seen? How much, how much facts and data need to be come into a room so it's not biased by just the people's stories in the room? How do you transfer mm-hmm. relationships without interracial context putting too much weight on the people of color? How do you allow white people to go through a racial journey without having people of color having to be the ones that educate them? But how do you also have people of color be in the room so that they can have empathy and begin to learn what it might be like to actually have grown up in a white house where you were actually never told any of the things that actually happen in this country? How do you begin to have the conversations that we usually don't have together across difference and Mm. commit to coming together again and again and again? So sustained dialogue on college campuses, at least then, you meet, you commit to being part of a group two out two to three hours every two weeks for the course of the year with the same group. Wow. And it was transformative for me. And it was transformative for me in part because I learned how to actually become a facilitator. One of the things we found going back to specific and disputable was was the 
best groups were the ones that actually brought together specific groups. So like the Jewish Arab dialogue at UVA was like a very, very powerful one mm. because they had a focus. There was another group that was facilitated between black fraternity life and white fraternity life. It was a very powerful group because there was heat there. There was a, there's a, there's focus. Mm. Some of these dialogue groups would get a little bit vague because as soon as you go into the, like the black, white line, then like the Latinos or the Indians or the South Asians be like, whoa, 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 there's also us. Don't forget us. So, so it was this, it was this palette. And if, you know, college students are listening, I think whether you do something like sustained dialogue or anything else, college is this wonderful place to ask the question again, what is a need mm. in the world that you might be interested, that you might have the passion and capacity to address and to practice that. Like I became a conflict resolution facilitator because I practiced facilitation with my own community on college campus. I didn't need a job to do it. I didn't need to, mm -hmm. you know, be a diplomat to do it. I was just, I saw a need in my community and I tried to figure out how can we address this. And college or graduate school or any time where you don't have to figure out how to make money in that moment is a wonderful time to practice being a citizen with those around you. Mm. And do you think that it was that sustained dialogue work that helped, obviously, with the degrees and your master's, but did that help when you went to work on peace processes in India, South Africa, Zambia, the Middle East? And I mean, the list obviously mm -hmm. goes on. That was all sustained dialogue. So mm -hmm. when I graduated, I worked with Hal Saunders. So he kind of took me as a as a mentor, as a mentee. And when he was facilitating Arab-American European dialogues pre-Arab Spring with leaders, I was the rapporteur in the room, right? Mm -hmm. So I learned for three days, eight hours a day, I would sit and type verbatim notes between Arabic and English translators. And I learned to listen, right? It's like the practice of like following a dialogue over the course of eight hours and transcribing it. Like I developed a craft and a mastery of being able to follow language and understand the arc of a conversation. When I, I lived in India and worked with the Dalai Lama's Peace Foundation and worked with college students there, who are having regional conflict within dorm life from different parts of, of India. I worked in Gujarat looking after the riots, looking at could sustained dialogue be a solution after the Muslim pogroms in Gujarat, and, um, and learned the limits of dialogue. So when power is deeply imbalanced and the government mm -hmm. is actually is returning funds to the, central, to the central government saying, we have no problem here, dialogue is not the answer, mm -hmm. right? You actually need power and structural shifts. So, but I mean, the art of gathering, the, the DNA underneath it is sustained dialogue. It's so cool. I, I can't wait to hear audience feedback on the <laughs> book because I just know that after this conversation, everyone's going to read it. Um, and I, I'll just say one more thing about sustained dialogue mm. was that it took the, the, the field of dialogue, like I say I'm a conflict resolution facilitator, but I'm actually in the field of group dialogue. And, and dialogue is is a sacred practice. And it's mm. something that we can learn to get better at. Like the, one of the fathers of the field is a man named Martin Buber. And he talked about the relationship between I and thou. And that human beings have meaningful and powerful connections when we treat ourselves and the other as sacred. And, and they become banal and they become dangerous when they move from an I-thou relationship to an I-it relationship. Mm. And so anybody who, who practices or goes into sustained dialogue or of these fields of, of, of practicing dialogue and understanding it starts to be, you start, like the reason I wrote this book is because I started becoming agitated by what the rest of our culture tells us about what creates meaningful gatherings. Mm. 
And when we obsess about, you know, when we outsource our expertise about gatherings to chefs or to etiquette experts or to lighting experts, nothing against any of those industries. Those are all masterful crafts in and of themselves. But when they become associated with meaningful gatherings, Mm -hmm. it becomes deeply dangerous. The meaningful gathering should be one thing, and then the artful setting in which you host it should be an additive other. Correct. It shouldn't be a replacement. Exactly. Because I want to have a meaningful gathering in a beautifully lit room. Yes. But the lighting doesn't make up for the subject matter. Exactly. It doesn't, it's not the source of meaning. Yeah. It's an enabler. Yeah. And we've, we've become a culture that believes that that's the source of meaning. Mm -hmm. And part of what I'm saying is don't, it's not saying that your place should be ugly. It's not, you know, there's all of this research that does like aesthetics deeply matter, right? The aesthetics of joy, right? Like there's all of these bodies of work now that are saying that the visual matters. And in the book, I talk about density around a table and lighting, like almost always turn the lights down. Like if you're trying to have a meaningful conversation, turn the lights down. Like there's Mm -hmm. certain things that you can do, but that that is actually, it's all context setting. Don't stop there. Mm-hmm. And a lot of our gathering wisdom has basically been shorthand for saying the meaning is the dish. It's like, no, 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 no. The dish is a way of nurturing and nourishing, but we shouldn't just stop there. And part of this is actually a shift in power and the shift of the role of the woman in society. Mm. Because 50 to 100 years ago, the, the role and the source of power in, in society for a woman was broadly in the home. And so the way that you actually manifested power in the home was through the shaping of the social life. But the shaping of the social life was also through the shaping of things. Mm-hmm. And so as our as we are unlearning and undoing the role of the woman, all of a sudden what I'm trying to do is extract this archetype of like the host with the apron in the kitchen to actually saying, no, 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 no. Hosting is something that's deeply sacred. Mm-hmm. And it's about creating meaning between people, whether you're a great cook, wonderful. I love great food. I love, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of my friends are chefs. Like this is not a hate against chefs or a rant against chefs. It's saying that that is one way of shaping a context, but any of us can gather meaningfully and you don't need to be a great cook. You don't need to have a fancy house. Mm. You can have it be a potluck. You don't even necessarily need to have food, but food helps. But to become competitive about meaning making, not competitive about table setting. I love that. It's a really important perspective shift. And it's possible. So something I ask everyone who comes on, I'm curious when you think about the name of the of the podcast, Work in Progress, what comes to mind for you firstly as a work in progress in your life? Oh my gosh, there's so many parts of my I mean my whole life is a work in progress. Uh, that that idea of becoming is is mm-hmm. like we are all works in progress. I think particularly right now a work in progress is figuring out how to be a mother and how to be a mother with a partner who is a father. And how do we both be out in the world in the public square, mm. but also as deeply committed to being um, present parents at home? Mm-hmm. I think a work in progress for me has always been how do I, you know, as a facilitator, you're taught to deeply hear other people's opinions and values and summarize them and play them back to each other, but it's easier to hide. And so a work in progress for me is to actually start articulating what my specific disputable beliefs are. Mm. I often now, I, I, I am still a facilitator and I work with a lot of clients and organizations, particularly in the political world. And I often say now, like, I am a facilitator, but I will tell you what I think. I'm a facilitator, but I will tell you what my opinions and what my advice is. Mm. Um, I am not neutral. 
And that has been a huge work in progress, you know, not unlike what you shared. One of the things I most loved during our time together at Together Live is when you said, I'm not tequila, I can't please everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think moving from being a pleaser to being an informed woman with opinions and beliefs and standing up for them Mm. is and has always been a work in progress for me. Very cool. Thank you so much. You're just so brilliant. And and you, every time I get to hear you speak, it's like the best kind of earthquake. I feel totally (laughs) rattled and, and repositioned. And I'm just really grateful that you made time for us today. Thank you so much for having me and for all of the work that you do and for your willingness to continue to use your platform to stand up for specific disputable things that make our societies better and more inclusive. I deeply admire it. Thank you so much. You're the best. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy.